All right, well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Mark. Last week we began our series, which I worked out actually this week. I finalised, I think it's 62 messages. So it's, I thought it was going to be 52, but that's just soft. So we're going for 62. I think that's the best way that we can get through this book and complete this book in a way that we're going to be able to seek and enjoy gazing at the beauty of the Saviour. And today we're going to be looking at just three verses from verse 9 through to verse 11 of chapter 1. But for context, I want us to read from verse 1. And if you are making notes and you like titles, this message is called, It All Begins. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for your word for its clarity and its profound effect on our lives. And Lord, as we gather here in under your word, Lord, did you speak to us? Lord, as we perceive this scene, would our lives be radically affected? Would we not leave this morning unaffected by the clarity it brings as to who you are? Lord, open our eyes to see this. Amen. In Robert Steen's book, Playing by the Rules, A Basic Guide to Interpreting the Bible, he tells of this scene where he's gathering in a small group as a church, um, as a home Bible study. And the text that they're actually looking at in the home Bible study is the verses that we just read out this morning. Same verses that we are studying today. And so they read them out together, and after they read them out together, the question was asked, you know, what do you believe this passage is here for? And one participant said, well, you know, I, I'm pretty convinced that what this passage means is that we should all get baptised. People who put their faith in Jesus Christ should get baptised, and when they do get baptised, it should definitely be by full immersion, just like it was with Jesus. Another guy says, well, for me... I." Yeah, I can see that, but for me, I really think that this text, the takeaway, is that we all need to ensure that we're baptised in the Spirit. 
Because that's the greater baptism. So we need to ensure that as Christians we are baptised in the Spirit. And then another responded, well, you know, I'm not too sure exactly what it means, but I'm pretty sure what it really teaches us is that if we really want to commune with God and get close to God, we need to be out in the wilderness. We need to make sure we've got alone time with God where there's no noise. I think that's what this passage is here for. So why is then this text here in Mark? Why has Mark very deliberately placed it here? What purpose does it fulfill? Is that one of the answers? You see, I think it's a good question, isn't it? Why is it here? There is no doubt that one will wonder as you examine the baptism of Jesus Christ as to why it is here. And yet what is also true, I believe, is that when we seek to answer that question, I think a common tendency and temptation we can all find is that we seek to find ourselves in the story a little too quick. When we read the Bible, we can all too quickly ask the question, well, what does that mean for me? What do I have to do with it? Where am I in the story? It's a common temptation. It was certainly the temptation of those in the Bible study with Robert Steen that I read out at the start. Where am I in the story? And as I was thinking about this this week, I'd say one of my challenges that I sometimes face, which I'll, I'll tell you, which means you know, you'll know from here on in, is sometimes people want to take me through their, their wedding pictures. And it's always a precious moment. So you sit down, you have them over, you have a coffee, and one by one the page is turning, and you think, this is delightful. But here's what I'm thinking. Where am I? Where am I in this book? And as each page is turning, I'm thinking, this is great. You look really lovely. You're lovely bride, lovely. Is there any more? Is there any group shots? Any shots of me? That's what I want to know. Where am I in this book? Well, that can be amusing and not the end of the world. It's probably not a credible and a good thing, but not the end of the world. And yet I think that when we come to God's word, we can do exactly the same. We can read it seeking to find, where am I in this story? What does this have to do with me? A common tendency and temptation, I think, to find ourselves using ourselves as the primary point of reference as if this book was written in its entirety, first and foremost, for me. But it wasn't. The Bible is not written, first and foremost, with us in view. It's not designed that way. So it doesn't mean we're not in it, we are in it. And we're going to find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark on a number of occasions. We will see ourselves at different points. But first and foremost, what we have to understand in studying God's Word, and in particular the Gospel of Mark, is it's not first and foremost about us. It's first and foremost about Jesus Christ. It's first and foremost about the Son of God. It's first and foremost about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which is why we read in verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We can't then proceed through this book as if it is a wedding album looking for ourselves. Because in every picture, what we will see is not primarily ourselves, but the bridegroom. This book is about him. It's about Christ and him crucified all the way through the Bible. Every page whispers his name, and as we read the Gospel of Mark, every page screams his name. So I want to encourage you, as a church and as individuals, let us not be too quick as we gather around the Gospel of Mark to try and find ourselves. You will find yourselves, and it will be a sweet discovery at different moments when you see yourself. But that's not the point. That's not why this was written. 
was written so that we can first and foremost see Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you, look for him. Be quick to gather around this word, looking for the bridegroom. Gaze at him. And here's why I want us to gaze at him. Because as we gaze at him, it is as we gaze at him that we will then be able to say like Paul, the greatest thing in all my life is knowing him. Because we'll truly know him. You'll begin to see him and you'll be amazed with, this is who he is. This is how incredible he is. It will have a profound effect on your life. But the profound effect on your life will not come with a list of to-dos from this book. It will come through seeing him and gazing at him and his majesty. Jesus Christ, Son of God. So I have two points this morning. It's not a complicated sermon and yet I trust and I hope it will be a profound sermon as you see the Saviour for who he really is in this text. And there's two affirmations in this text, two affirmations in three verses. Here's the first. Jesus' affirmation of John. Oh, and this is profound. Verse 9. We read, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. In verse 9, there is a profound attention shift going on. We've had all eyes, in verse 5, on the multitudes. Does all of the country of Judea and Jerusalem go out to John? The gaze has been on the multitudes. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people moving out to be baptised by John. And yet from verse 9 onwards, the gaze is not on the multitudes, the gaze is on this one lone figure. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ from Nazareth. You know, Nazareth is an obscure town. It's probably the size of a soccer field. It's not a big place. Around 200 people would have lived there. It was an obscure town. In the Old Testament, it doesn't even get a mention because it's just no big deal. And in the New Testament, it gets numerous mentions when we're introduced to Jesus of Nazareth. But apart from that, it's only mentioned once with the phrase, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. That's the type of place it is. This is no big deal. It's just Nazareth. It's like a shantytown in the middle of nowhere. No one cares from Nazareth. Nothing good can surely come from Nazareth. And yet having been introduced to Jesus in verses 7 and 8, having read of how John, who is himself a superstar, says that one is coming who is mightier than him, who is greater than him, who's strapped on the, the, the Saviour's sandals, he's not worthy to stoop down and untie, we now read that Jesus Christ, this one, comes from Nazareth. That's bizarre. And yet that's what we see taking place in verse 9. After John announces to us in verse 7, 8, that the coming of the mightier one is on his way, there is one coming whose sandals he is worthy to untie. There is one coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. We now see this lone figure, Jesus of Nazareth, coming forward from Nazareth and proceeding to enter into the water of the Jordan to be baptized by John. And you cannot help but wonder, in contrast to verses 7 and 8, why is he getting baptized? He's the sinless one. He's the mighty one. He's the great one. Why is he walking in 
to the polluted, sinful waters of the Jordan like everybody else. Why would this one mightier than John, this one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, why would he subject himself to the baptism of John? William Lane, in his commentary, says, By skillfully placing verses 8 and 9 next to each other, Mark portrays the enormous contrast between the baptism which the Lord is to perform and that to which he himself submits. It's true, there is a great contrast which takes place between the baptism of the Holy Spirit that the the mightier one has come to do. He's come to seek and save the lost. He will baptize them in the Holy Spirit. They will be forgiven and redeemed and adopted. They will know that heaven is their home. And yet we now we see this great one entering the sinfully polluted waters of the Jordan. Why? Why would he do that? You know, one of the things we have to understand about Mark, by way of background, which will help us, is that Mark is highly strategic and, and highly selective in what he tells us. You know, like in the Gospel of John, when you get to the end of the Gospel of John, and John says, you know, there were many other miracles, many other works that Jesus did, more than could be written. You know, he's using hyperbole to help us see there's loads of stuff going on, but I've chosen these things to tell you, because it's in telling you these things that it will give you enough to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, you will have life in his name. He's not telling us everything. He's being selective and strategic. And so is Mark. Mark doesn't tell us everything. He's highly strategic in the events that he tells us. And he's highly selective in the words. None of these words are out of place. These verses 9 through 11 are 53 words in the original Greek. And that is totally disproportionate to the majesty of what Mark is telling us. And so you can be guaranteed that as he tells us about this, every single word is important. Because this is significant. And this is, according to Mark, a highly significant moment, which is why he's recording it right here for us in his Gospel. See, the baptism of Jesus is, without doubt, highly significant. In Acts chapter 1, as Peter leads the line on replacing Judas... This is what he says about the one that we're going to have to choose. He says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, listen, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. It was so significant that he was aware that we need to find one that saw Jesus getting baptised and then was with us when he rose again. He understood that this is what is most important. And he numbers his baptism among those most important things. Why? Well, the reason why this moment is so significant is because the baptism in the life and saving ministry of Jesus Christ is the moment when it all begins. It's the moment when his public ministry all begins. And so why is it the moment? Why does he choose baptism? Why does the sinless one choose to get baptized when he really doesn't need to? Why does he use this as an introduction into his ministry? Well, there's a number of reasons, and they're all incredible reasons. See, the reason, part one, that Jesus steps into the polluted sinful waters of the Jordan 
The first reason is because in doing so, he is affirming John in his call and ministry. See, John was prophesied about in Malachi and Isaiah. We read it here in verses 2 and 3. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Hundreds of years before John ever appears on the scene, it's prophesied that one will come prior to the Saviour, prior to the Mighty One, and he will be preaching a message of the divine judgment of God to come and the importance of repentance and making the path straight before he arrives. Well, Jesus, in getting in the River Jordan, is affirming that John is right. This is the one. This is he of whom Malachi talks about. This is he of who Isaiah talks about. This is the one who is preparing the way for the mighty one to come. So Jesus enters the waters knowing that this will be a moment where he can affirm John in his call and ministry. But that's not all. In entering the waters, Jesus also affirms John in his message. John's message throughout was of the coming, ensuing judgment of God on Israel. That God will judge them in their righteous wrath, in his righteous wrath, and yet as part of the process and of being forgiven of that wrath is the baptism of repentance, it is the need for repentance in preparation for the one to come, the Holy One, Christ himself. Well, as Jesus enters the water, he is not only pointing to John, and in effect, you know what saying, this is he who was prophesied about, he is agreeing with his message that there is a righteous judgment to come. And we do need to prepare the way for the Holy One to come. We do need to offer repentance before Him. But here's where it gets profound. Jesus was not only affirming John in His call of ministry, Jesus was not only affirming John in His message. The priority reason why Jesus got baptized as the sinless Saviour because in doing so, Jesus identifies with sinful humanity. He identifies with you. And he identifies with me. He steps into the Jordan identifying himself with sinful humanity and doing so, and in doing so, he takes his first steps, his first steps to the Calvary where he will ultimately take on the true burden of the righteous wrath of God. And so here it, it all begins. Kent Hughes says it this way. He says, because Jesus was sinless, he needed no baptism of repentance. But in his baptism, he associated himself with us sinners and placed himself among the guilty, not for his own salvation, but for ours. Not for his own guilt, but for ours. And to Jesus, his baptism meant the cross. It's incredible, isn't it? He's not just getting baptised. Now he's, he's identifying with sinful mankind. He didn't need to get in. He's the sinless one. He is without guilt. But in getting in, he is taking his first steps towards Calvary where he will carry the guilt and the sin of all mankind. That's why Jesus is standing in the line 
He would have just lined up as a regular guy waiting to be baptised. He takes his moment in the queue. And then he steps in as the only one there that didn't need to. But he steps in to identify with everyone present and everyone to come. James Denny effectively describes this scene this way when he writes the following. He says, We might have expected that that where the work of God was being done through the prophetic ministry of John, that Jesus would be present. Certainly we would have expected that. But we should have looked for him at John's side, confronting the people and assisting the prophet to proclaim the word of God. Yet nothing is more true to the character of Jesus and to the spirit in which he carries through his mission than that he appears not at John's side, but among the people who came to be baptised. His entrance, like the whole work from beginning to end, was an act of loving communion with us in our misery. He numbered himself with the transgressors and made the burden of our sins his own. And that, my friends, is how it all begins. His ministry does not begin as you would have, I thought, expected with a show of strength, with a, with a fanfare, with trumpets, with banners, with armory, with the heavenly realms just singing his praises and everybody bowing to their knees, realizing this is the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is he, the great one that we've been waiting for. Now his ministry starts with him walking out of his house in an unknown, insignificant place in Nazareth to step into the polluted, sinful waters of the Jordan to affirm John in his call and in his message, but more than anything, to identify with sinful mankind. Is that not incredible? It's amazing. Well, you know what happened in the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew, he records to us John's response. Because as Jesus steps towards John, he's aghast. You're the Lamb of God, the the one who has come for the whole earth. Why are you getting in? You you don't need to get in. You're the king we've been waiting for. Don't don't get in. I, I, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should baptize me. You should baptize me with the Spirit. You're the mighty one. I'm not even worthy to tie your sandals. And yet Jesus keeps walking towards him, continues to walk into the Jordan, and as John objects, Jesus just in effect says to him, John, you need to baptize me because this is where it all begins. This is what I've come for, to identify with him. And as you imagine that scene, you can't help but see the tears falling down John's face as he's baptizing the mighty one of all. He shouldn't be here. In the same way he shouldn't have been born into the stable of Bethlehem. The same way he he shouldn't have grown up in Nazareth. In the same way he, he shouldn't be entering the Jordan. He is the mighty king of all, the son of God, 
gets baptized to affirm John in his message and his call and to align himself with us, identifying himself among the sinners. Jesus affirms John. But that's not the only affirmation we see in this text. Number two, the Father's affirmation of Jesus. Look with me at verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. And with you, I am well pleased. William Lane, once again, he says, Many had come to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but only in the instance of Jesus, in whom true submission to God was perfectly embodied, was the coming up from the water answered by coming down from above. Jesus would have looked like in that moment, just like everybody else, Thousands of people are getting baptized by John. And yet this one is unique. This one is different to all that have preceded and all that were to come. And Mark very deliberately wants to help us see that. He wants to help us to see what took place. And he gives us three serious signs that reveal the unique identity of this one. The unique identity of Jesus of Nazareth. The unique identity opposed to all others as to why this one is surely the Son of God. Why surely this is He. Different to all the others, this one is unique. And so Mark pulls back the curtain for us of what took place in this moment as Jesus comes up from the waters. And what takes place is without doubt heavily steeped in a wealth of imagery and echoes from the Old Testament. See, the first thing that takes place, the first thing that Jesus sees as he comes up from the waters, the first thing he sees is the heavens being torn open. As the Saviour comes up from the water, the first thing he sees are the heavens being torn apart. And this would have been a cataclysmic moment. It says here in our ESV that the heavens are opening. He saw the heavens opening. Opening. That all sounds very nice. It sounds like, you know, there's just a, a break in the clouds and a bit of light came through and this is all very pleasant. Uh, it, that's not a, a fair description. It is a, a cataclysmic moment because the Greek word doesn't just mean opening, it means tearing. The heavens are torn apart. The skies are being torn apart in this moment. As the Saviour arrives from the water, as he comes up from the water, a cataclysmic moment happens. The heavens are torn apart. Think parting of the Red Sea as you imagine what is taking place in the heavenly realms in this moment. There is a tearing. There is a rending in the heavens. A rending that was mentioned hundreds of years earlier. A rending that was prayed for hundreds of years earlier. In Isaiah 64 verse 1, We see the prophet Isaiah having observed the state of mankind and of Israel. He cries out to God in desperation. And he cries out to God these words, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Literally, oh, that you would tear apart the heavens and that you would come down. And for 700 years, that prayer was not answered. 
But here in this moment, as Jesus is baptized and comes up from the water, this prayer is answered. The heavens are torn apart as an illustration that God has come down. This is He. This is God incarnate. This is the Son of God. Yes, mankind is in a state. Yes, mankind does need a saviour. Yes, mankind does need the king to come. And as the heavens are opened up prophetically, the pointer is, this is he. This is the one that Isaiah was praying for. And so as Jesus comes up from the water, the heavens are torn open. Later on in the Gospel of Mark, we will see another tearing. When Jesus breathes his last having declared that it is finished. The heavens won't be torn apart in that moment, but the temple curtain will be torn in two from top to bottom, revealing that it is finished. Everything that he came for is now done. The way back to God has been made clear. It is possible through the temple curtain being torn in two to see clearly there is now a way back to the Holy of Holies. There's a way back for me to spend time with God. There's a way back for me to be forgiven and redeemed and justified and know that I'm right with God. And here, as his journey begins, the heavens are opened, revealing this is he. This is the one you've been waiting for. This is the one that was prophesied years earlier. And then he sees this. Look, verse 10. He saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So he sees the heavens torn open and then he sees the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove as he receives fresh empowerment for sin for him and for his mission and ministry to come. He receives fresh empowerment from the Holy Spirit to empower him and anoint him in his saving mission to come. In this incredible divine moment, he lifts up his eyes, the heavens are torn in two, and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. The Spirit that once hovered over the waters of the world in Genesis chapter 1, helping to create order from chaos, now arrives and descends on the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to empower him to liberate this world from the chaos of sin that it has become. And then, this happens. A divine decree. He has seen the heavens torn open. He has seen the Holy Spirit arrive on him. But God's not done yet. There's something now he wants him to Here, verse 11. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. And with you, I'm well pleased. God the Father is now speaking to the son. See, every bit of pride that you can feel as a dad towards your kids is only a dim reflection of how God feels about the son. Every part of love that we can feel as fathers towards our children is only a dim reflection, a dim reflection of how the father feels about his son. And so here he is, making it clear to his son, you're my beloved son. I love you. 
you are my beloved son. And with you, son, I am well pleased. This is the moment that they've been planning. This is the moment when 30 years on from Jesus being born through the birth canal of Mary, God the Father knew this is the moment where your ministry will begin. Even though this would come at a terrible cost to the son. And yet his son leaves his home in Nazareth and steps into the waters of the Jordan revealing, this is my moment, Dad. And he sees the heavens torn open, the Spirit descending like a dove on him, and he hears his dad say, you're my beloved son, and in you I'm well pleased. It's a profound moment of tenderness, of greatness. Mark is giving us a window seat of seeing how the Trinity are operating. It's profound. It's incredible. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, we saw this moment talked about. Psalm 2, verse 6 says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. David imperfectly foreshadowed the king to come. David imperfectly foreshadowed the true king to come because the true king to come will also be his son. And now as the heavens are rolled back like a scroll, God the Father is declaring, you are the king because you are my beloved son. You are, son, the one that this world has been waiting for. And you want to know how I feel about you? That was prophesied in Isaiah 42 where we read, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. I'm going to send one, in whom will be all my delight, and I will put the spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. And in this moment, God the Father, in a moment where he cannot contain himself anymore, he's just so brimming with love and affection and pride in his Son. As the heavens are rolled back like a scroll and the Spirit descends on him like a dove, the Father cannot contain himself any longer and he makes it clear, this is my beloved Son. This is him. And Son... In you, I am well pleased. A profound moment. The one being baptized in this moment is the king referenced in Psalm 2. He's the son referenced in Isaiah 42 and he will eventually suffer like the one mentioned in Isaiah 53. He's the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He's the one that everybody will flee from. They won't recognize him. And yet he will be wounded for their transgressions. And God the Father, knowing all that is to come, looks at his son. He says, you are my son. You're my beloved son. And in you I am well pleased. You know, what a moment for the son this must have been, don't you think? Immediately after this moment, he's going to be driven into the wilderness the place where Israel failed. They were tempted by Satan and they didn't manage. 
It's going to be hard for Jesus. He's going to be tempted just like we are. What a moment prior to that to hear your father say to you, I love you. And in you I'm well pleased. What a moment this must have been for the Saviour. But also, I think, what a moment this is for us as we see him as the king, as we see him as the son of God, not just Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus, the Christ, the son of God that was promised and who is now here. William Lane, again in his commentary, says this passage marks the high point of revelation in the prologue of Mark's gospel. And it provides the indispensable background for all that is to follow. Yes, it does. And yes, it is. This moment, this passage, does mark the high point of revelation in the prologue of Mark's Gospel. This is the highlight. This is the heights of the mountain. The moment when Jesus affirms John, affirming John in his message and in who he is and identifying himself with sinful mankind. And then the Father responds by tearing the heavens apart, sending the Holy Spirit to descend on him like a dove, and then personally, through a loud voice in and of himself, declaring over his Son that you are my beloved Son. And in you I am well pleased. This passage marks the high point of revelation in the prologue of Mark's Gospel. It does. This passage, as Mr. Lane has helpfully pointed out, also provides for us the indispensable background for all that is to follow. Because this is the Son of God we're looking at. This is the Christ. This is the one who came to take away all of your sin. This is the one who would bleed at Calvary and suffer the righteous wrath of God in your place. And so my friends, I want to encourage you, as we then proceed through the Gospel of Mark, would we not all too quickly try and find ourselves? Would we not proceed through this book just wondering what it means for me? How do I apply this? What about me? This book is not about you. First and foremost, this book is about Christ and Him crucified. It's about what He's done. So don't be too quick to try and find yourself. But instead, I want to encourage you, be quick to find the bridegroom. Be quick to find Jesus. And as you find Him, would you seek and savor Him? Would you be aware that this is the King of kings? This is the Lord of lords. And as you seek him and as you savor him, would you fall in love with him all over again? Whether that be for the first time or whether that just be again, would he amaze you? This is our king. Let's pray.
Lord, as we consider that moment when you, as the sinless one, walked into the polluted, sinful waters of the Jordan in our place. Lord, would we align ourselves with John the Baptist with perplexment and sorrow as to why you're getting in it all? But then would we marvel as we realise you're getting in to align yourself with me. And Lord, as we continue to gaze at you, oh Lord, would you come down afresh and quicken our hearts to marvel at you. Lord, would we be slow, would we be slow to see ourselves, but would we be quick to behold you? And Lord, would all our hearts then be quickened with fresh love for you? Because you are incredible. You are the king. And would knowing you then be the greatest thing in our lives? In Jesus' name, amen.